How's everybody? Great. I'm so glad. Uh, it's great to be back from, we were in St. Louis for this last week, where the temperature actually felt like Christmas. Lows in the 20s. I also bring you greetings from Michael and Ashley, and I would ask just to continue to pray for them. They've been attending a church that's near their house. Uh, but they're not sure if this is where God has them, wants them to stay. And if anybody wants to see uh, the major reason for our trip, our granddaughter Amelia, I have pictures, but I won't show them now. I want to thank Brian for filling in last week. Brian is not here. Uh, he and his wife, Francesca, are ill. I got a text about six this morning saying that, I don't know, can you give details? He was throwing up. And so, uh, I haven't, I didn't, uh, so, so be in prayer for Brian and Francesca. Uh, I didn't have time to listen to the message from last week. But I have received some really good reports, so uh, thank Brian for that. So let's turn to our passage in Philippians uh, that my mother read for us. This is where we'll spend the four weeks of Advent leading us to Christmas. For, for me, Christmas has always uh, seemed a little uh, schizophrenic uh, because we have one name, uh, Christmas, for, very for two very different concepts. In the Bible, we read the Christmas story of a young couple that could find no room. At the end, we read of a baby born in humble, even poor circumstances, born in a stable, placed in a manger, a feeding trough. But in our cultural celebration of Christmas, uh, we surround ourselves with wealth, the gift-giving, Warm houses and amazing food. We sing about shepherds, but we spend time shopping. We read about angels from heaven and wise men from the east, and we talk about Santa Claus, elves, and reindeer from the north. There seems to be a major disconnect between the Christmas story found in Scripture and what we experience at Christmas time. It's clear that our world, our culture, has turned Christmas into something much different than the celebration of Christ coming into our world. And even in the church, I think we often miss the main point. We focus on the story of Mary and Joseph, of angels, of wise men and shepherds. Important they are, but they're just the, the, the surrounding, they're just the circumstances surrounding the story. And we can sometimes miss the main point or the main person. Not to be cl cliche, but we can miss the true meaning of Christmas. This meaning is clearly not found in our cultural celebrations. It's not even found primarily in the circumstances of Jesus' birth, but it's found in the identity of the baby in the manger. Who is this Jesus that entered our world? The meaning of Christmas is found in the fact that the God of the universe would become a crying, screaming, uh, bedwetting baby. A baby that needed to be taught and changed and fed. A baby that was dependent upon those whom he created. The true meaning of Christmas is found in this incredible reality. The reality of a God who entered our world as a 
little baby named Jesus. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks is to examine who this Jesus is. And to do that, we're going to spend time in the passage read this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This passage has been called a Christ hymn, possibly the first Christian hymn ever written. And its purpose was and is to both exalt Christ for who He is, to worship Christ, and to call His church to follow Him because of who He is, to follow His example. And that, and that will be our purpose as well, to learn and reinforce the truths of who Christ is, that we might exalt Him, that we might declare Hosanna, exalt Him, that we might grow in our worship of Him, and that we might grow in following after Him. In these seven verses, we get an amazing summary of who Jesus is. And in so doing, we get a clear understanding of the meaning of Christmas. So, along with uh, hope and joy and peace and love of Advent, over the next four weeks, I want us to see four truths about Jesus. There are more. We're going to focus on these four. For many of us, these truths won't be new. And so we might be tempted to tune out, to say, oh, I've heard this before. I've heard this sermon before. But I'd encourage you not to do that. Because whether you're hearing uh, these truths for the first time or the hundredth time, they, uh, these truths about Jesus, who Jesus is, are foundational to our faith. They need to be burned into our hearts and minds and souls. And it's my hope and prayer to present these truths in such a way that those who've never heard uh, will be drawn to God by His Spirit, drawn to put their faith in this Jesus who we'll be talking about. And those who've heard and believed these truths before will not only be reminded of who Jesus is, but will be equipped to share who Jesus is with others. Evangelism, uh, sharing the gospel, sharing your faith, sharing with others is primarily telling people who Jesus is and what He's done for them. So even if you don't normally take notes, uh, this might be a good time to start. There, there every, every week I'll have notes back there and a little note sheet. You can go online and print them out beforehand if you want. Because in a very real sense, this Advent series is meant to equip God's people to share who Jesus is with their friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and anyone else God leads you to. And Philippians 2, 5 through 11, uh, will serve as our anchor text. Uh, uh, it'll serve as our outline. We'll look at other passages that reinforce these truths that we're going to talk about. Patches, passages that we can use even this Christmas uh, uh, to tell people who Jesus is, to tell people why he was born, why do we talk about him. So the four truths about Jesus that we'll cover over the next four weeks are as follows. Today we'll see uh, that He is God. Foundational truth number one. Jesus is God. And in subsequent weeks, weeks, we'll see that He is man, He is Savior, and He is Lord. Those are the four truths that we'll be looking at over the next four weeks. Now before Paul gives us these truths, 
before he lays them out in this Christ hymn, he tells us how we're to apply them. Look at verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 serves as a call to be like Christ, to follow Christ, to have the mind of Christ. Paul's calling his readers to grab hold of Christ as their example. If you remember in our study through uh, 1 Peter, Peter does the same thing. Peter says, uh, use Christ. Christ is your example of unjust suffering. And in a similar way, as we'll see this week and weeks to come, Paul wants to follow Christ, us to follow Christ's example specifically of humility. Humility. Because Christ humbled himself in a way that's... Uh, beyond anything we could possibly conceive of. I mean, we think of being humble, of humbling ourselves. Well, Christ humbled himself in a way that isn't even possible for us. Listen to verse 6. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This verse speaks of Christ's willingness to humble himself, to not count equality with God a thing to hold on to, to grasp on to. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If he would have grasped hold of it, if he wouldn't would held on and wouldn't have let go, we wouldn't be here today. Next week, we'll talk more about this humility and how it led uh, Jesus to take the form of a servant, to take the form of a man. But this week, we're going to focus on the fact that Jesus was in the form of God. This sets Jesus apart from everyone else in history. This is not just uh, your normal baby born into the world. This is someone who was in the form of God. The word form in the Greek is, is uh, morphe which means nature or essence, the essentials of your being, what he exists as. Jesus exists, his nature, the NIV uses the word nature or form, the ESV we're using, the NASB, King James. Jesus existed in the nature, the form of God. That doesn't mean he was just similar to God. It means he is God in essence. He exists as God. His nature is God. So the very nature of the little crying baby in the manger is that of the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of heaven and earth. Incredible and in many ways incomprehensible, but let's try and comprehend as much as we can. And to do that, I want us to go to another Christmas story found in a gospel. Again, not the traditional ones found in Matthew and Luke, but the one found in John, because there we discover that Jesus is the Word of God. John begins his gospel, his biography of Jesus Christ with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you think, what? what? I mean, you're reading it. We know if we've read it before, we know what comes next. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this is John's Christmas story. 
And it can help us to comprehend Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. The form of God. Jesus, John is taking us back to the beginning. And he's saying that the Word that became flesh, Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, existed in the beginning with God and as God. Again, mysterious Trinitarian stuff here. Jesus is God The Father is God. The Spirit is God. We're not going there today. The focus is Jesus is God. John describes Jesus' nature, his form, as not only uh, God, but the Word. Now, the obvious question is, why does John call Jesus the Word? Think about it. He starts with, in the beginning. Uh, Do those words bring anything to mind? In the beginning. The first words of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God. Goes on, created the heavens and earth. But in the beginning, God. Before anything else existed, before anything else was created, there was God. And in the beginning was the Word, John says. In the beginning, there was God and the Word. And and verse 3 of Genesis 1, we read, And God said... Let there be light. God spoke and creation happened. How did it happen? It happened by the word of God. God spoke and it came into being. God's power in creation is revealed through his word. So God reveals himself, his power, who he is in essence, in form, through his word. The word of God is his revelation the expression of himself. That was true in the spoken word of creation. That is true of the written word of the Bible. And that is true of the physical manifestation, the incarnation, the entering into our world of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word of God. This means that Jesus is God revealing himself to our world. Jesus is God taking a form that we could see this is who God is. Jesus is God revealed in human flesh. In John 14, 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus existed in the form of God. His nature is God. Jesus is the Word of God, God's revelation of Himself to the world. So clearly, from these texts, when we ask the question, who is this Jesus? The answer must be, He is God. Let me ask another related question. Did Jesus ever specifically say, I'm God? Wait for it. Anybody? Don't, don't, don't answer, because if you're wrong, you'll be embarrassed. Uh, he didn't. The New Testament never quotes Jesus saying, I am God. In fact, that's what many people, especially Muslims or Jehovah Witnesses, say to Christians. They, they'll say something like, why do you believe that Jesus is God when Jesus never says, I am God? How would you respond to that challenge? As I said, part of the purpose of this message is to equip us to answer this kind of question, to equip us to show that even though Jesus does not say the words, I am God, Scripture reveals and he do- reveals that he does claim to be God, clearly. 
So let's look at a few of the passages where Jesus, maybe indirectly, but clearly claims to be God. Many of, uh, many of which, many of these passages are found in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, we find one of the clearest pictures that we have of the deity of Christ. There we see that Jesus is equal to God. Uh, so, so the context, Jesus had just healed a guy on the Sabbath. And some of the religious leaders uh, are mad at this guy that Jesus healed. Why? Because he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. So he couldn't walk. He was laying on a mat and Jesus comes and heals him. And so he picks up his mat and he's, he's walking with his mat. He's walking for the first time. And the religious leaders come up to him and say, put your mat down. It's the Sabbath, man. And when they find out that Jesus healed him, when he tells them his story, they go after Jesus. Look at verses 16 and 18 of John chapter 5. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, first of all, to realize we all call God our father, right? That was not a thing you did uh, back in Jesus' day. And when Jesus talks about God as his father, he's not talking about how you and I have a father, He's talking about how he and God, the Father, are related to one another. As the Jewish Jewish leaders knew, he's making himself equal with God. He makes himself equal to God, not, not just by calling God his Father, but by working on the Sabbath. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, Uh, when these religious leaders start attacking him for healing on the Sabbath, uh, he doesn't say, what are you guys talking about? I'm not working, I'm healing. That's not work. He acknowledges he is working. He's working just like his father works. Both Jesus and the Jews knew that God didn't completely rest on the Sabbath. God continued to work. He continued the work of sustaining his creation. God doesn't just take a day off. If you go back to Genesis and you look up uh, and God rested, it says, and he rested from his work that he had just done. He rested from creating. He stopped creating, but he didn't just... Because if God took the day off, uh, we would all be gone, just to be clear. So, so they knew that God continued his work, and Jesus is saying, I got to work like my father. But the Jews had, they had stringent rules to make sure that they, as men and women, did not work on the Sabbath. So for Jesus to be working and to claim the right and the authority to work on the Sabbath, he was equating himself with God, the Lord of the Sabbath. So in John 5, Jesus is, albeit indirectly, claiming to be equal to God. Then in John 8, we see that Jesus has the name of God. Jesus, again, context, Jesus is conversing with the religious leaders again. At the end of the chapter, they're talking about how Jesus may be, uh, they didn't like what he had to say. So they say, talking about how he may be a demon-possessed Samaritan. Them's fighting words, really, but uh, Jesus didn't fight with them. In verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, 
He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, not, I do know him, and I keep his word. And then, beginning in verse 54, Jesus drops this bombshell. Your father Abraham... Anybody remember Abraham? Anybody know Abraham? Father Abraham. He lived about 4,000 years ago, which is about 2,000 years before Jesus. So your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What does Jesus mean? Before Abraham was, I am. I am what? I am who? What's he talking about? Well, if you're familiar with the story of Moses, who's after Abraham, before Jesus, historically, uh, which the Jews were very familiar, Moses was their guy, in Exodus chapter 3, at the burning bush, when Moses asked God, his name, if you remember the story, if you've seen the movie, now Charlton Heston does a good job. In verse 14, we read, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God says his name is I am. Yahweh is where we get the Yahweh. It's, it's, it's just I am. Period. And Jesus applies this name to himself. And Jesus is claiming to be God when he does that. And just to make sure we're not reading into this text something that's not there, look at what happens next. So Jesus is trying to communicate to these guys. And let's see what these guys understand about what he's saying. Verse 59 says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why'd they want to stone him? You stone a blasphemer. You stone someone who equates himself with God. There can be no doubt that the people of Jesus' day knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And many of them were not happy about it. So Jesus' enemies knew he claimed to be God. But what about his friends? What did they think? Let's go to John 20 where, we see, where we'll see Jesus is my Lord and my God. Context again, Jesus has risen from the grave, which is great evidence, by the way, uh, that there's something pretty different about him. That's the Easter message. Uh, he'd, he, he'd already revealed himself. He'd hung out with uh, some of his disciples, but uh, one of them was not there, Thomas. And when the others told Thomas that they had seen Jesus, Thomas uh, famously doubted. Then in uh, John chapter 20, verse 26, we read Thomas's first encounter with the risen Christ. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Thomas makes the boldest statement yet of Jesus' deity. Now, if Jesus was not claiming to be God, this would have been a perfect opportunity to set things right, right? 
to say, what did you call me, Thomas? You've got it wrong. I'm, I'm not God. I'm a pretty good guy. God raised me from the dead, but I, I'm not God. You missed the point. But that's not what he says. Verse 29, Jesus told him, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus confirms what Thomas believes, that Jesus is his Lord and his God. So these are just a couple examples of Jesus claiming to be God, though he doesn't say the words, I am God. And this is just one of the Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke as well. Let's conclude uh, with, with this part, with an example from Mark chapter, chapter 2, where we see that Jesus forgives sins like God. So Jesus was in Capernaum at a house preaching the word. Uh, and four men show up carrying a paralytic, a paralyzed person on a mat. I mean, they're carrying him. But before the crowd, uh, because of the crowd was so big, they couldn't get into this house to see Jesus. So they boldly rem- go up, you know, won't go into the details of how this happened, but they remove the roof, the thatch roof, and let the man down right, right where Jesus was, right in the center of the room. And Jesus not only physically heals this paralyzed person, but in verse 5 we read, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus clearly claims to forgive sins. Jesus claims the ability to forgive sins. Anybody can do that here? Anybody want to give it a shot? I wouldn't recommend it. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus' claim to forgive sins was the claim that set him apart. For Lewis, it was the straw that broke the camel's back in seeing the deity of Christ. Uh, For you to do something wrong, to sin, uh, against someone else, and for me to say that you must come to me for forgiveness... Because you've offended me, you've sinned against me, and I alone can forgive you. This is very bold, very bold claim, a claim that only God can make. So again, we see that Jesus, even though he never says, I am God, is still clearly claiming to be God. Now, once you've got this established, and we could go on, there are other places, other scriptures pile on the evidence. I think those six are good examples for us. But once you have got this established that Jesus claimed to be God, he allowed others to worship him as God, he presented himself in such a way that his enemies believed he was uh, saying he was God. Once you see that Jesus did claim to be God, then it seems to me and others, I didn't invent what we're about to Uh, cover here, that there are just four options to Jesus' true identity. Let me give you the options, and then we can examine each one. Either Jesus is a legend, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Now, you may have heard of those options before. They're a modification and summary of what C.S. Lewis presents in his book, Mere Christianity. But even if they're familiar to you, I think it's important, especially this time of year, that that you 
that you hopefully will engage people in conversation about Jesus Christ, about the Christ of Christmas, and that you hear these options again, or for the first time if you haven't heard them yet. That those who hear these options can be equipped to share both who Jesus is and who he is not with those who don't know him. The first option is that Jesus was a legend. This says, yes, uh, the Bible clearly states that Jesus claimed to be God, but it's just a story. It's, uh, it's fictional. It's made up. It's mythological or allegorical. Now, we don't have time to investigate the truth, the auth- historical authenticity and reliability of Scripture. There are lots of books out there written on this subject. I recommend uh, one, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. I was going to put that in your notes, but I forgot. The New, new Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. He had an old book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. This is the new revised version. The first four chapters of that book deal with the reliability of Scripture, the historical reliability. Evidence presented there and in other places makes it clear that no other ancient document has anything near the historical reliability of the Bible. Also, there have been uh, uh, much more archaeological evidence to show the historicity of the Bible. I just finished reading uh, Eric Metaxas's new book titled, Is Atheism Dead? In this book, Metaxas looks at scientific evidence that points to a creator and to archaeological evidence that points to the reliability of the Bible. One interesting, he begins the archaeological section by stating this, there has been no archaeological, I mean, there's still lots of things to discover, but there has been to this point no archaeological evidence uh, discovered to contradict anything in the Scripture. There have been many things discovered to confirm it, but nothing to contradict it. So, with regards to Jesus specifically, among other things, Metaxas points out, Josephus, a Jew, not a Christian, twice refers to Jesus in his History of the Jews, written in the last years of the first century. The Roman senator and historian Tacitus, in his annals, writes of Jesus and his crucifixion too. And in a letter to the emperor of Trajan, the Roman historian Sutius, who was also the governor of Bithynia and Pontus, discusses what to do with the troublemaking Christians who refuse to worship the emperor. So not only is the New Testament, which presents Jesus as an actual historical person, reliable, But the fact that Jesus existed is also attested to outside the pages of the Bible. And therefore, Jesus is more than just a legend, more than just a story that was made up. But that's one option. Jesus is a legend. The second option is that Jesus was a liar. If Jesus claimed to be God but wasn't, then he must have been a liar. Now, I don't think very many people, even those who don't believe Jesus was God, would say that he was a liar. Instead, they they would say something like what Thomas Jefferson said several hundred years ago. Jesus is the highest, the greatest of human teachers. He is a great teacher, a great man who had powerful things to say, things that his people need to listen to more. He had great teachings. He wasn't God. He was a great teacher, a great man. Now remember, 
we've established the fact that Jesus clearly claimed to be God. In fact, it was at the core of his teaching. His teaching revolved around himself. Example, John 14.6. That's why, by the way, Thomas Jefferson had his own version of the Bible where he cut out all the miraculous stuff, all the stuff that, like what we're about to read here, with, without any reason to do so. No difference between what, those things and others except a preconceived notion that Jesus was not God. Uh, John 14, 6-7, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've known me, you would have known my Father also. For now on, from now on, you do know him and have seen him because you've seen me. And so, if at the core of his teaching, he's saying he is God and he's not God, then that might make him, there's one other option we'll get to, that might make him a liar. And if he's a liar, then the last thing we would call him is a great teacher. My wife teaches math, and if she lies about the quadratic formula or the Pythagorean theorem, or for you less gifted in math, 2 plus 2 is 5, just kidding, then no one would call her a great teacher. But she is a great teacher, by the way. Do you call a teacher great who at the core is lying and deceiving everyone that he teaches? Do you call a great uh, man somebody who goes around deceiving people intentionally his entire ministry? Obviously, that would not be a great man. But that's our second option, Jesus is a liar. Third option is Jesus was a lunatic. Maybe he just had lost his marbles, right? Because If historically he did claim to be God, he's not a legend, and if he believed his claim was true, he's not trying to lie, but if he is not God, then that just makes him crazy. He was just a guy who thought he was God. He would not be unique in that. Many people throughout history have thought they were God, Uh, and we tend to know what to do with those people, right? If I started claiming to be God, then you'd, uh, you'd know that it's time for me to step down as the pastor of this church and get some serious help. But if I claimed to be God and then started uh, walking on water, feeding 5,000 people with uh, five loaves and two fish, raising people from the dead, healing people of disease and sickness, and preaching profound life-changing messages on love and forgiveness— You might say, well, I better think again about what he's claiming. It doesn't make sense that a crazy man would do and say such amazing things. But that's one option. Jesus just thought he was God. He was trying to be as truthful as possible, but he had just lost his mind. The thing is that hardly anyone would say that Jesus was a lunatic. I've never heard it. Even uh, many non-believers, Thomas Jefferson, for example, have much respect for Jesus as a person. They know he existed, and they wouldn't say he's a legend, a lunatic, or a liar. Mahatma Gandhi, who studied the Bible and Christianity, said, Jesus is ideal and wonderful, but you Christians, you are not like him. Whether Gandhi's conclusion about Christians is true or not isn't the point. The point is that those who examine the life and teachings of Jesus, even if they don't 
put their faith in him, still view what he does and says in a positive way. Because it's amazing. The Sermon on the Mount is amazing. Forgive your enemies. It's crazy, but it's amazing, right? Love those who persecute you. They say, they, they say things like, after reading, after studying, they say things like, he was a good man, a great teacher, ideal and wonderful. They don't call him a, a legend, a liar, or a lunatic. So if Jesus did claim to be God, and we don't believe he's a legend, a liar, or a lunatic, then the only possibility to the left is that what he said is actually true. And therefore, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. C.S. Lewis has stated it well. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. It's not an option to call, even though I've said there's four options, really, it's not an option to call Jesus just a great man, a great human teacher. He's either a legend, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And really, if you followed along here, uh, there's really only one option, right? He is the Lord. Now, with that realization, we have a decision to make. Because how we answer the question, who is this Jesus, has direct impact on our lives. It's not just some question for discussion and debate. It's a question for application to our, our lives. There are four options, but only two decisions. If you believe that Jesus was a legend or a liar or a lunatic, then your decision is the same. You must reject him as Lord. That's one option, to reject him. I don't recommend it. It seems that the evidence is against it. But this is an option that many, most, I dare say, have taken and will continue to take. But there's another decision you can make. If you believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, if you believe that he's Emmanuel, God with us, that he was in the form, the nature of God, that he is the word of God, the self-expression of God among us, God incarnate, God in flesh, then you must receive him as Lord and Savior. Again, the Apostle John makes that clear. In between verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, is verse 12 of John chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. When you receive him... You're saying, I believe in you. I belong to you. You're giving your life to Him. You're giving your life to God because that's who Jesus is. So those are the two options I want to put before us today. To reject Him or to receive Him. And if you don't receive Him, by definition, you've rejected Him. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And I want to challenge every person here to deal personally with those two options. Today, if you've already received him, if you know him, if you're his child, if you've believed in him and you belong to him, then this is a time to remember that he is the Lord of your life. 
This is a time to worship and honor Him as God. This is a time to remember that you gave Him as the Lord, as God, the control of your life. And you're called to follow Him. And this is a time in obedience to His commands to tell others who He is, what He's done for you, and what He offers to do for them. This is a time to share who Jesus is with those around you. But if you've never believed in, in His truths, in, this, in these truths, and received Jesus into your life, if today who Jesus is has become clear to you, and God's Spirit is, is speaking to your heart, is drawing you to Him, then I, that I would invite you for the first time to say, Jesus, God, I believe that what you say is true. Jesus, you're not a legend, you're not a liar, certainly not a lunatic, you're the Lord. You're God, and therefore I trust you with my very life. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his coming. We thank you that he did not uh, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but as we'll see next week, took on the form of a servant on the form of a man, incarnated himself among us, God in human flesh. Lord, we thank you so much for this. Lord, and I pray for, for us who've trusted in you. I pray that you would give us this, the, the wisdom and strength to worship you for who you are in our lives, for what you've done for us, and that we would be bold in sharing that with others. And I pray for those who maybe are hearing this and realizing for the first time that they haven't trusted Jesus as their Lord. Lord, I pray you would continue to work in their hearts. I pray that even today they would give their lives completely to you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.